Once again, good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, Ephesians 3 is where we're going to be. Um, we have most of the scripture, I think, on the screen, but if you have your Bible and uh, want to write things in there and highlight things in there, it's good. Uh, my name is Derek again. Welcome to Christian Church Buckhead, and uh, we have a lot to do today, so let me just pray for us, for our time together, and then we'll get into our passage for today. God, thank you for um, the morning that we've had together. Thank you for uh, just the, the blessing of, of singing to you and expressing our faith and hope in you through song. And uh, God, thank you for the elements, the bread and the juice that uh, bring us back to center. Uh, that's why we're here. We're focused on or trying to focus on um, the, the story of redemption in the world, your, your promise to Israel, your fulfillment of that promise in Christ and, and to the nations. And so, God, as we circle up around your word today, just for a few minutes, I pray that uh, you speak to us and encourage us. And in your name that I pray, and everyone said, amen. So I want to start at the very end of our passage today, because this is uh, where it's heading. And so we'll put this on the screen for you. This is the very last thing uh, in our text today. Paul says, and now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's how the passage ends. Now, this is a pretty famous uh, piece of scripture in the Bible. If you're familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard this in some form or fashion. There are other versions that say that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. Uh, so there's different, different wordings of it. But this is a pretty famous one. And to be honest, like we love this one because this one sounds like we get stuff. Like, whatever it is that we get, we get more than we thought we would get, right? That's what it sounds like if we pray the right prayer, if we're sort of in the right place with God, then he will do far more for us uh, than we could ever even think about. It's like that Christmas morning when you're looking over your gifts and you think, well, this was really a terrible year. <laughs> I mean, I got socks, pens, candy, some paper, a sweater, and you're just thinking, I guess we didn't make a lot of money this year. Like, I don't know what the story is. And then one of your parents says, oh, why don't you go and check out the box behind the tree? And it's like the BB gun, right? Uh, or maybe that was just a movie. Uh, and so, like, you go and check it out, and you're like, oh, wow, that's more than I, you know, of course, anything's better than socks. But, I mean, that's more than I thought I would get. When we were like, when I was like 14, uh, we had a Christmas, it was very much like that. It was like, I mean, I, I got nothing. It was like Neko candy, um, some pens, you know, just some really random things. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to be nice about it to my, you know, my parents like, oh, well, thank you. I've always wanted candy. And um, so I'm, I'm going to save this for later so I don't ruin it. And then my dad, like he waits a little while and then my dad says, hey, why don't you go, uh, why don't you go up to the garage? I'm 14, but for some reason I was thinking, sweet, I got a car. You know, like, he got me a car, you know. Just irrational thought at that point. So my brother and I, we run up to the garage, and we go out into the garage, and there are like two dune buggy go-karts, uh, go like, sitting there, like, it was just it was beautiful. You know, like, we rode them that day, I think. I mean, we, I mean, we just loved that. But it was like, basically... That was more than we had imagined. You know, like when he said, go look in the garage, of course, my first thought was a car. But as I'm running up the, the stairs, I'm thinking, I'm only 14. Why would he buy me a car? Maybe it's a bicycle. And it turns out to be sort of a car. It's a go-kart, which is just really, really fun. Uh, churches will use this verse to get stuff. 
they will use this verse as a tagline to some push to get things that they think God wants them to have more of, like people or buildings or resources. It's very rare that I will, I think because it's maybe a reaction to just a long history of listening to sermons that really aren't about the text, but they're about getting the building built. And then the moment you feel like, well, I, I guess I can't really, you know, uh, say much. They throw this verse in there. Oh, and we got to remember that whatever we think that we need, God wants us to have more, immeasurably more, far more abundantly he wants to give. Now, it may be relational for you. Like this verse might be like maybe you're on a date and uh, this guy's talking about himself a lot. And the more you listen to him talk about himself, you start thinking, you know what? Maybe God has far more better for me than this guy. <laughs> right? So maybe it's just kind of a people-to-people thing. Like, you know what? I'm in this situation. It's really lame. And maybe God has immeasurably more, abundantly more for me than this guy. So you go to the restroom and then you leave without him knowing. Um, anybody ever done that, by the way? I, I recommend it. All right. Now, <laughs> bring it back in. Now, you may have never even seen these words before. I mean, you may have walked in today and we put them on the screen. You're like, okay, it's new stuff for me. And then some of you, it may be very, very familiar to you. Now, some of you may be very skeptical of these words that Paul writes uh, because you're looking at them and wondering why that hasn't happened in your life. Like you've been asking for stuff, a lot of things for many, many years, and it feels like you've gotten less than what you've asked for, not more. Or perhaps those of you who know these words very well, like they're very, uh, they're very important to you. You live by them. You put hope in them. And I say all that to say this, a lot of times the Bible and its words can sometimes be a frustration for us because we read something like this, we see this on the page, and we read it from the wrong angle. We read it for what it's not saying. And then we become frustrated with it because maybe we're going at it from the wrong perspective. So let me set this thing up and perhaps help us all out. And then we're going to back up into the passage that precedes this. But let me just say it this way. This verse or these two verses is essentially a promise of what God can do uh, for us inwardly, not what he will do for us outwardly. This verse has nothing to do with resources, although God can certainly provide those things, even beyond what we would think or hope for. But that's not what this verse is about. This ending to this passage is about what God can do in us. And to add to this discussion, it is about us in the plural. It is about his church. It may be about you individually. It may be that your faith is at stake. It may be that your personal relationship with God is what he's speaking of. But overall, he's speaking about us and what God can do in us inwardly, not so much outwardly. Does that make sense? Let me just show you a very simple slide. I mean, this is what this is about. Paul is writing about growth, not numerically, not successfully, not things that you can always measure but a growth in our faith. This passage is about how we can know more of God. And it will happen in a way, he says, that is not expected. And that there will be more than expected. It's about our faith. 
and that we would grow and deepen and progress in our faith. And I assume that's why you're here. I mean, I I just assume that at the end of the day, what you don't want is less faith. Like, I hope that I end my life with less faith than I started. But my guess is you're giving God and maybe this church half a chance at this opportunity to progress in your faith, right? Not less, but more. And this passage, in fact, promises abundance in that in some way. Now, let me give you some background. The first 13 verses of this chapter, uh, Paul is explaining his passion in life. And he's explaining his desire to do what he does. And he does this by pointing to the people that he cares so much about. He calls them Gentiles, which is a nice term for other nations, right? Other than his own, which was Israel. And so he points to the people that he cares about, these Gentiles, these other nations, When Jesus gives the Great Commission, go into all the nations, ethne, it's like that's what he's talking about. People other than you. People from places and cultures other than your own. And so Paul took that call of Christ very seriously. And he gave his life to taking that story of Jesus to the nations that were away from his own. He was a missionary. And if you know any missionaries, they are typically the most sold out, bought in people that you'll ever meet. Because they just leave it all behind to go do this in some way. And Paul was no exception. And so the first half of this chapter is simply, he reminds his readers, which is, also includes us today, of his love for them. And then what he does, remarkably, beginning in verse 14, he prays for the church on paper. In other words, like if you ever get an email that's a prayer, I know that feels weird, but that's very scriptural. There's a lot of prayers in these letters, and that's all Paul's doing. He's praying for the church, and therefore he's also praying for us. Look at verses 14, 15, and 16. This is how it begins. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be what? Strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being. This prayer is a prayer for our inner being. That we would be strengthened there first. Not a prayer for our circumstances. Not a prayer for what's happening to us outwardly. Not a prayer for what we're involved with physically, relationally, etc. He prays first for the inner being. That we would find strength there in the soul. The inward person. This prayer is for our faith and trust and all that comes with those things. Right? So this prayer is not that we would be strengthened by gaining more on the outside, but that we would find strength on the inside, which always ends up helping us with the losses that we experience on the outside. So Paul begins his prayer with this prayer for us and our faith, our inner selves, strength. Psalm 1 says it this way, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. The wording in this poem is strong. It contrasts someone who is overly concerned with his outward standing, The psalm begins saying, 
uh, blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, that he, that he walks in the counsel of the wicked, that he stands in the way of sinners. That doesn't mean he stands and blocks sinners like a lineman. That means he's in their lane. He likes that lane. He likes that flow of traffic. But blessed is the man who is not in that lane, who does not walk that direction, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. If you don't know what a scoffer is, if your Facebook friends are always negative on their status updates, that's pretty much, you know, that's, that's what we're going for there. There's no hope there. But he, his delight, he says, and delight is this inner thing, it's this passion that you have, it's all you think about, is in the law of the Lord. And there might not be a more repelling, less exciting word than law. But for the Jews, the law of the Lord was a jewel, a thing to be treasured. You can interpret it as the way of God or the ways of the Lord, his instructions for living, the Torah, how you should do life. The delight of the person who is blessed is on that. And he says, on his law, he meditates. Again, that's very internal. You're always thinking about it day and night like a tree, a good picture of not just any tree, but by streams of water, he says. And a stream is moving. It's not a dead lake or still water. It's a moving, it's living water. Jesus called himself, I'm the living water. There's life in this thing. It's moving, it's producing. So the poetry here is very, very strong. And this meditation on the law of the Lord, the ways of the Lord. He rolls it over in his head all day, day and night. It's like when you read something in Scripture or maybe you hear something today from the Scripture and you just spend the rest of the day going, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? You just keep twisting it and turning it and listening to it. And the writer says that it's that sort of person who is like a tree with strong roots. The book of Psalms or the Psalter, the Jewish book of prayer, begins with this, that a blessed person is one who rolls over the ways of God in their head, in their inner being, day and night, thinking about what they mean and how to live them out. Jesus said it this way, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness, which is not necessarily a perfect life, but a life that is bent on the ways of God, justice, peace, mercy, grace, righteousness, And then Jesus ends that saying, for they will be filled. If that's their hunger, I'll fill it with that. Notice what Paul says next in uh, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. Now Paul is speaking to us. In this text, the word you there is plural. It's not just individual, although an individual is part of the we, but this is about us. He is praying for us as a church that somehow um, that Christ may dwell in our hearts. I like what Jesus says in Revelation 3.20 when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The picture in that verse is huge to me. It's Jesus wanting to share a meal. And a meal is personal. 
I mean, if I asked you out to lunch today, if, if you didn't know me, it could be awkward. Uh, it's too soon, Pastor. It's too soon. <laughs> but in that culture, the culture of Jesus, a meal is extremely personal. You don't just eat with anybody. You eat with people that you approve of. You eat with people that you agree with. In Luke's gospel, which is essentially framed around eight different meals that Jesus is attending, most of them get the response from outsiders, why is Jesus eating with those people? Now, we sort of see that, you know, the Pharisees ask this question about why is Jesus eating with sinners, and we get really upset about that, you know, because that's what you're supposed to do, because we're in the Lord's army. But, (laughs) sorry. Uh, But for the culture... It was a legitimate question. They're just trying to get their heads around, why does Jesus have these associations with people and these sorts of people? But you get the picture here in Revelation 3 that there's a relationship that God wants to have with his people. And this whole thing about a meal, it's the meeting ground. Like it's the go-between. The divine and the human are meeting together over a meal, sharing a meal. And the thing about a meal, when you share a meal, is that's not in isolation. You're sharing it with someone. There's some exchanging going on. There's a discussion happening. There's a conversation that must be had. And it happens over and over again because a meal repeats itself. And so when Jesus says, I want to eat with you, I want to come in and hang out with you over a meal, it's this looping relationship of exchange. Back and forth. You and me. Let's eat together. It's a beautiful passage, and it comes around again and again and again. And we must keep eating and discussing and growing. And we do this, Paul says, with each other, right? Next slide. So that, uh, well, same slide. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, etc. And then it says that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. And then there's this nice line there at the end, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth. There's been all sorts of discussion about what Paul, like what does he mean there? I think it's Augustine that has this whole like idea that this is, a, this is an image of the cross, the height of the cross, the depth of the cross, the length of the cross, etc. And there's all these different ideas about what Paul is talking about, but, and I don't even rank myself with these theologians, but let me just sort of put it to you this way. Paul is essentially saying, my prayer for you is that somehow you will get a glimpse and comprehend just enough of all the dimensions of God's love. That your faith will get to a point where you can recognize the dimensions of God's love. And that the whole community of God's people, the church, he says, together with the saints, that together we press forward and towards knowing God more. And faith always seems to grow best in the soil of community. An isolated faith, it doesn't do very well. And so Paul speaks to the group. He speaks to the crowd. He speaks to the community. And he says, I hope that you, my prayer for you is that somehow through your church family that you will come to understand all the dimensions of Christ's love. Experience it. Test it. Plumb the depths of it right? Rise to the heights of it. Notice what verse 19 says, and to know the love of Christ that what surpasses what? 
knowledge. Jamie alluded to this earlier in the service, if you were in here at that point, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, I mean, that's a pretty incredible phrase. I mean, essentially what Paul is saying here is, my prayer is that you know some stuff that you just can't truly know. I hope you can know the unknowable, that somehow the love of Christ is just not knowable, but I'm praying that you know it. Isn't that great? I mean, it feels weird to sort of say it that way, but that's what he's saying, that the love of God that surpasses our ability to process it, and yet Paul's prayer is that we can grasp it, that we can somehow get it. Lately, I've done quite a few weddings where the, uh, the bride and the groom will write their own vows. Have you been to these? It's slightly less than awkward. You know, it's a beautiful thing because it's very, very personal, but it's just, it's, it's just weird, you know, because they're real nervous and they pull out the piece of paper and the wife-to-be unfolds it and she reads off this thing and she's worked on it for months and the groom has worked on it for like a few minutes before the wedding. And... He pulls out the piece of paper, and they just, and they're just trying to describe like their words of affection for each other, and it just gets really sort of funny. And um, but the best one I heard this year was uh, the bride to be looked at the husband, and their vows were just all these promises they were making to each other. And one of hers to him was, "I promise to always take the cotton out of the medicine bottle for you." Does anybody else have that phobia or whatever that is? Like you just can't touch the cotton? <laughs> now you laugh. You laugh. Here's the thing. I was sitting there as, a, as the guy doing the wedding thinking, now that's good. Because all this mess about I will love you in the bad times and the good times, that's, that's junk. Because <laughs> that's going to fade away. But pulling the cotton out of the medicine bottle, that goes the distance. Like that, that sticks around, Right? I mean, just like you do, everybody laughed, and I'm like, nope, that's, that's strong. That's, that's a true, never mind, okay. But here's the thing, like when they write their vows, uh, their words are always less than the reality that they feel. The language they use on paper to tell one another they love them and about their commitment to them is always frustrated. It's a frustrated prose. It's hindered in some way. Because there is this realm of things that we know to be true, but our words sort of diminish the power of that truth. I've heard Jesus and the scriptures referred to in this way, that Jesus and the scriptures are very similar in that they are both 100% divine and 100% human. Just let that process for a moment. And when you're talking about the scriptures, the moment you put words on a page to describe something that is indescribable, the words themselves prove their own insufficiency. And so we read the Psalms as prayers or as voices of our faith, but they are, all, they are not always enough. And when we talk about faith, when we talk about the love of God, we can't always describe it because it's just not knowable. And when, Christ, and when Paul says the unknowable, 
that surpasses knowledge, this, the love of Christ, this agape, this always rooted in grace and truth and, and forgiveness and all those things that we know to be true about God's love, that's just not knowable. We don't comprehend that, and yet we put our faith and our hope in it. So sometimes when people are trying to express something that they know deep within their soul, their words automatically diminish at least the perceived power of that truth. And so we can know what is unknowable. We just can't always say it. We can't always express it. And when I listen to couples do their own vows, and from my viewpoint, which is always about three feet away, what I hear is a person's understanding of their partner's love for them, even if they can't describe it very well. And Paul says God's love for us surpasses everyday knowledge. And yet we can know it. This is Paul's prayer for the church. That we might, every now and then, run into the right words to describe what we are learning about God and his love for us. And that our relationship with him is growing to a place where we start to know what it feels like to know the unknowable. When I was younger in the faith, particularly in ministry, Um, knowing God was simply knowing about God. I know the stories, I know the facts, I know the figures. My sermons in the early days of youth ministry when they would allow me to preach on New Year's Day, (laughs) I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was 21, 22, I have no life experience. And so like when I'm coming to the text to prepare a sermon that the text might be about some really deep-rooted life issues, I don't know what to say. Or how to say it. So I would basically just put all the information down. Oh, that's a good piece of information. Uh, That's a nice historical fact. This is a nice Greek sort of thing. And this is this and this and this. And then I would get up and I would preach this sermon. And the older ladies in the church would always come up to me in those early years and say, well, that was a lot of interesting information. (laughs) Which usually leads to no transformation. Just a a lot of facts, a lot of numbers. And my pursuit of God was, at the time, what I could just contain in my head. But there's a different prayer that Paul is praying here, one that sounds more like a father to a child and not a teacher to student. That we would grow to the point where our words to describe our faith would sound more like personally written wedding vows than they would theology. And this is Paul's prayer for us that our faith would grow. And he prayed that these young followers of Christ might discover what it means to be a follower of Christ, which means that you understand and grasp his love. That's all he's saying. I mean, he's saying a lot of things, and there's some amazing things, but at the end of the day, at the end of the passage, what he's getting at isn't all that complicated. He's praying for your faith and my faith. He's praying for our faith as a local body, that it would strengthen through time, to the point where we might comprehend the dimensions of God's love. And as I said earlier, that sort of faith grows best with each other. It grows best in the soil of conversation and community and circles. You probably sat on a small group car when you came in, 
and we do these, we're registering people for small groups this fall. We were laughing about this last week because we set the cards back out during the week. And what we've noticed is uh, it's a nice little uh, demographic study for us. The middle section of the church, the cards are always still in the seats. But the side sections are empty. So we don't know what that means. Like, you people don't care or you're already, ca- I mean, we don't know. We don't really try to interpret that. Uh, I mean, I do. But... Um, but, it's, but basically, all we're saying when we say, hey, look, think about getting in a circle this year with people is so that your faith can grow not in isolation, but in community. And so Paul's prayer is for the church, for us, for we, as we move forward. Let's just look at the closing passage one more time. Now to him who is able to do far more, and again, this is about our faith, our inner being, And for those of you who have been Christ followers for a while, you understand this, hopefully now, where it's like, oh yeah, I was seeking God in this area, and then boom, I got more than I thought I would get. Or like, I just was doing morning devotions like, you know, I'm supposed to do, but it just like unfolded into something pretty extraordinary. I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't imagining that. Or maybe I never thought I would be as faithful in this area or that area, but four or five years down the road, you look back and you're like, wow, I've come a long way. And he just closes this prayer saying, now to him who is able to do all that sort of stuff, all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And then he just closes it with, amen, amen. So be it. Let it be. Does that make sense? It's our heart for you. Our, Our hope is that somehow your faith grows and that our faith grows as a church family. Let me pray for you, and then we'll uh, sing uh, on our way out. Father, thank you for uh, your word today. Thank you for um, this prayer that Paul prayed uh, for the churches in all generations, and we thank you for the blessing of being able to see it, to listen to it, to hear it, to process it. Um, God, we do pray for our faith. We pray for um, our relationship with you that, um, that every so often we can stumble into a place where, man, we get it. Just for a moment, we get the breadth of your love and the depth of how much you care for us and that we can just comprehend the, the dimensions of who you are. And God, we know that you just work amazing things in community with people. And so I pray that Uh, You continue to do that in this church community. I pray that you do that in all the churches in this city and around the world. Um, That somehow, um, in the midst of our lives, that we can continue to connect with each other and grow in our inner selves. God, we love you and we thank you for today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.